Well, please do turn to Colossians chapter 3, which is on page 984, if you're using the church Bibles. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene or abusive talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to receive these words as words from yourself, and that these words would enter our lives and do your work in us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, the church is full of hypocrites. 
Have you heard that comment ever made? I won't ask you to raise your hand. I guess most of us have heard someone say that to us. You know, one of the best answers I've come across is, um, is to respond by saying, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, but don't worry. There's room for another one. Do come and join us. Um, of course, none of us wants to be a hypocrite, to play act, to have something else going on the inside and different from the facade or the face. We want to be real Christians. But what does a real Christian life look like? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Paul has just warned that the real Christian life is not one of slavery to the religious systems of the world, even Christian versions of religion, full of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. No, the real Christian finds freedom, though, in submission to the rule and authority of Christ. He is the one we submit to, not to anyone or anything else. And the real Christian, and this is the astonishing teaching of, do you remember, of chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the real Christian is, has been filled with the fullness of Christ. You, verse 10, have been filled in him. And Christ, remember, 2, 9, is the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the real Christian is someone in whom God has done a miracle. They've been spiritually united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So chapter 2, verse 13, you, middle of the verse, God made alive together with Christ. That's why at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you really are a Christian, you have been raised with Christ. You've been made alive. You were dead in trespasses and sin, facing the wrath of God, as he makes clear in chapter 3, verse 6. But God has transformed your life. And all of this, chapter 2, verse 12, is through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And that transformation means that you are now a forgiven person. Isn't that a wonderful statement? A forgiven person. And on the day of judgment, the day that is surely coming, when all the wrongs of this world will be righted and justice will be done finally and forever, on that day you will realize, if you're a Christian, and even if you never really realized this before, you will realize that nothing is more valuable or important than having your criminal record before God wiped clean. forgiven. But as you walk down the street after church today and people look at you, no one will be able to tell that you're a forgiven man or woman. There is nothing about you that will give it away. You might have a funny walk. We all have funny walks, but there's nothing particular about you which will tell the people that you're a forgiven man or woman. Because as chapter 3 verse 3 puts it, your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's something unseen about our lives with Christ. 
But the question we're looking at this morning, with the question that Paul addresses here in chapter 3 is, in the light of these astonishing realities, these spiritual realities, how then should we live as real Christians? What is the real Christian life like? And in the light of God's grace towards us, gratitude is how we should be driven. And that gratitude will issue in obedience to these series of commands that Paul gives. Three commands we're going to look at this morning. As the apostle tells us what we should do if we're going to live the life of the real Christian. And here is the first command. Set your mind on things above, verses 1 to 4. Set your mind on things above. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, the Christian's life is, is bound up with the life of Christ. You died with him, verse 3. You've been raised with him to new life, verse 1. But where is Christ now? Verse 1 tells us, he's seated at the right hand of God, bodily, in his resurrection body. There he is. If only we could see it. But we're told in verse 4 that he's going to make a return trip to this world, and he's going to take his people with him to glory. So what are we to do with this knowledge? Well, Paul tells us, verse 1, seek the things that are above. And that is going to mean that our ambitions are totally changed in this life. They're going to be completely different from the world around us. Because we, think, we see things with a completely different mindset. Verse 2, we set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. What is the mindset of this world, the people around us? Well, it's all about things like seeking pleasure and possessions and property and power. Pounds in the pocket or pounds on your app so that you just touch your phone and whew, it's paid for. Amazing. But the mindset of the Christian is to keep directing our thinking and our ambitions towards Christ in glory. Do you remember what Paul said to the church in Philippi as he evaluated the remainder of his life. He wasn't sure how long or short the rest of his life was going to be, but he was clear on this. He said this, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain, it's profit. Why is death better than life for the Christian? Because it means going to be with Christ, visibly in his presence, which is far better, as Paul says in Philippians 1. Meanwhile, back here on planet Earth, every day I live as a Christian is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Or as Paul puts it here in verse 4 of Colossians 3, Christ, who is your life, or our life. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means he's the source of our life, the creator and sustainer of all life. He's the goal of our life. We exist to serve and honor him. Do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 16, um, Paul puts it in these terms at the end of the verse. 
all things, talking of Christ and his supremacy, all things were created through him and for him. All things, including us. We were created for Christ and through Christ. Now, let me just be clear what this does not mean. It does not mean that, as a Christian, it's wrong to be in business or a health worker or a teacher or a mother or whatever it may be where you're preoccupied during the day and maybe during the night as well, up to your eyes in the business of whatever it is, your work, your responsibilities. No, in, in one sense, that, will be com- that may look completely the same as, as another person who's not a Christian at all. But your ambitions will be radically different. So you'll be constantly crying out to the Lord for help with this or that situation or relationship. You'll be praying that God would use it to refine your character and make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're under pressure, you'll realize that God is refining your character. He's getting rid, he's boiling you up, so to speak, and skimming off the dross, like when you purify precious metal. You'll be praying for people to be converted rather than for you to be promoted as you think about your, your working world. If God's given you children, you'll be longing, not so much that your children follow a particular career, but that they follow Christ. That's all that matters in the end. Set your minds on things that are above. And your reference point will be Christ, who is your life. That's how it'll be if you're a real Christian. And the question to ask ourselves, I guess at this point, is what are you seeking in your life? As you think about the next phase of your life, whatever it may be that you anticipate now, here you are today, what's coming up in the next few months or year or two? And what are you seeking above all? in that time as you see it unfolding before you. Well, the Apostle Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, if you're a real Christian, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Christ who is your life, remembering that when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. That's the first thing. Set your minds on things above. Second, verses 5 to 11, put to death the earthly. There it is in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The first thing that being a real Christian affects is your sex life. Sexual intimacy is designed for heterosexual marriage. No sex before marriage, no sex outside of marriage, sex only within marriage, without marriage, no sex. Is that weird? Well, maybe a few generations ago, or a few decades ago rather, it it wasn't so weird in this country because of the influence of Christian values over the centuries. So probably 50 years ago, the majority of people in this country wouldn't have looked quite so askance at what I just said a moment ago. But today, 
I mean, if that was broadcast on the radio, what I just said, it would be considered more than weird. It would be considered repressive and cruel, not to mention unattainable. How can you possibly expect people to live by those standards? Well, the answer, of course, is you can't expect people to live by those standards unless and until they have experienced the power of God to make them alive together with Christ. Because when that happens in someone's life, then we are given the power of God's Holy Spirit, the pure and purifying Spirit who comes to dwell in the life of the believer and enables us to put to death our natural impurity, our lustful passions, our disordered sexual desires, and our idolatrous greed for more. See, the reality of these, this list in verse 5, that is what's going on inside our heads. Our sinful nature is perfectly at home with these things. And the reality is, these arise in our hearts. Jesus said that, didn't he? Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, it was his first one too. So it's not that we don't battle with these things as Christians. It's just that we now have the strength that God gives to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. I love it in Romans 8. Uh, if you want to just flick over, feel free. Romans 8 verse 13, where Paul is talking about life in the Spirit. It's a fabulous chapter, Romans 8, if you've never got to know it. Let me suggest you do so. One of the fascinating things that Paul says there is, in verse 13, it says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, and I'm sure he's referring to the Holy Spirit, if by the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds or some translations, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit living in our lives who enables us, who leads us to a murderous campaign of putting to death the misdeeds of the body. So when these evil thoughts arise in our hearts and minds, as they will, if we're normal human beings, which we are, then we have that choice, don't we? What am I going to do with this thought that's just come into my head? Now, the Holy Spirit living in us, as it were, whispers in our ears and said, we're going to kick it out, right? We're going to throw it out immediately. We're not going to entertain it. We're not going to negotiate. We're just going to expel. And so we do, by the grace of God. Put to death the earthly in you. And incidentally, while we're talking about sex, God has given us the gift of sex to enjoy within safe and sacred boundaries, the boundaries of marriage, and that gives us such freedom. Following Christ is not repressive and restrictive. It gives us wonderful freedom. But we need to keep the fire in the fireplace, don't we, so we don't burn the house down. But who doesn't love a real fire, so long as it's in the fireplace? And God enables us also, if he's granted the gift of singleness, to find contentment in celibacy without sex, like our Lord Jesus himself enjoyed. 
if that is God's calling for our lives. And how sad it is, though, isn't it, when professing Christians refuse to live within God's good and safe boundaries, and all the more so when they're in leadership, in the church. But it does not need to be so in your life. And if you have fallen, forgiveness is available if only you will confess your sin to God. But how unbelievably foolish to claim to be a Christian and to flout God's clearly expressed will. Look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We know that. We've been warned. Now, for the real Christian, these things are in the past, verse 7. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now, verse 8, you must put them all away. Paul then moves from our sex lives to our speech lives, to how we use our tongue, verse 8 following. If anyone can keep their tongue under perfect control, they are a perfect person. Do you remember James says that in James 3? You're perfect in every way. If you could just control this tiny member inside your mouth. It's a big battleground, isn't it, for all of us? And the real Christian seeks God's help every day to control the tongue and to put away all these evil uses of the tongue. Verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene or perhaps abusive talk from the mouth. It's talking about things that cause division, I think. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Again, does this all feel a bit restrictive? Isn't it healthy to vent your anger, to get it out of your system? And don't people deserve it when they get a piece of my mind in the face of their sheer stupidity, especially if they're drivers who just cut me up? The answer to those questions is no. No, it's not great to vent your anger. What does the fruit of the Spirit include? Gentleness, self-control. What does Paul say in Philippians 4? Let your gentleness be clear to everyone. They can all see that you're a gentle man or a gentle woman. And ironically, to live like this, just to vent and give out and say what you think as soon as it comes into your mind, that is actually subhuman. To control your tongue is truly human. It's all part of the restoring of God's image in us. The renewing of our minds is where faith in Christ leads, remember. Verse 10, you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. God, through Christ, is reconciling the whole of creation to himself. He's going to restore it, the restoration of all things Jesus spoke about. One day, everything is going to be restored, and, and now we're living in the age when the Spirit has been poured out, and it's beginning to happen as a foretaste of the future. And in our lives, as we see in Christ the perfect image of God, we see what it looks like to be fully human. And Jesus had perfect control of his tongue. He never said a word out of place. So renewed in knowledge, being renewed in knowledge, it's a process, verse 10. It's all part of what it means to be a real Christian. 
and it's renewed in knowledge. Don't let anyone tell you that if you're going to become a Christian, you're going to throw your brains out the window. Not at all. You're actually switching your mind on more fully. It's like, you know, your phone or your laptop. Have you any idea what proportion of its capabilities you're using? I mean, I, I think I'm probably using about 5% of the capacity of both of them. Um, if I only knew what my phone and my laptop were capable of. I guess that's true with most of us. And maybe occasionally someone says, did you know that you can do this with your phone? You can actually dictate your texts. You don't have to type them or even swipe them with those funny words that come up that you send and you think, oh my, did I really send that? Yes, you did. Um, and so we discover new capacities and capabilities of our phones and our laptops. And with our own minds that God is renewing, it's just, there's a sense in which Following Christ and having our minds being renewed in knowledge is, is actually growing our capability to be human, to be the way God has made us. And this is something which happens to all Christians. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your race or your language or your culture is. If you become a Christian... It profoundly impacts you in this way, right across the board. And I think that's what Paul is driving at here in verse 11. Because he's saying, if these things are true of you, then here, that is in the local church. And remember, this was first read out in the, the living room of um, the lady, whose name I've now forgotten, um, in Colossae. Was just the, 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 the letter was read out in, in the home as the church gathered in the home. And so Paul is saying here, in, in this group, here in, in Duke Street, in this gathering, like we are this morning, we don't think, and there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. I mean, I don't know how you translate. Uh, Greek is, they were the sophisticated ones. They rather fancied themselves. So maybe it's like a Richmond resident. If you come across the typical Richmond resident, rather, rather pleased with themselves that they live in Richmond. Um, or a, a Jew, well... The pious, maybe the, the Duke Street family for generations kind of own the church, you feel. I know you, you know you don't, but you sometimes feel you do. Um, or a barbarian, this is the foreigner coming into view. The Greeks saw the world as divided between Greeks and barbarians. They were the civilized ones, then there was the rest. And as for the barbarians, they looked down on the Scythians. You know how it is every, every culture, like when we moved to Ireland, it's a terrible confession, isn't it? But for the for the British, or at least the English, the butt of humor is the Irish, right? It's shocking racism. Let me tell you that. So don't tell an Irish joke in my presence. Well, don't tell one, full stop. But you get to Ireland, who did the Irish tell the jokes about? Anyone know? The Kerry man. And where's Kerry? Down in the Southwest. So you discover, so in a sense, the, the barbarians like the Irish and the Scythians like the, the Kerry man. But, Perhaps I better stop there before I get into deep water. Um, slave or free, none of these distinctions apply anymore. There is only one thing that matters amongst God's people who follow Christ. There it is at the end of verse 11. But Christ is all and in all. He's the only one that matters. It's all about him. So our attitude to one another is not to think in these categories, but to remember that we are all one in Christ. 
So in our sex life, our speech life, our attitude to one another, the real Christian life means that we set our minds on things above where Christ is. And it means we put to death what is earthly in us. And thirdly and finally, we put on the clothing of Christ. Verses 12 to 15, we put on the clothing of Christ. Verse 12, put on them as God's chosen ones, the rest. Now, if you look back at verse 9, we see we have decisively put off the old self. You've, you've undressed, as it were, um, from your old clothing. Verse 10, you've put on the new self. You've put on your new dress. And how is that going to affect us today and tomorrow? Well, it means that when I get up in the morning as a Christian, I don't just think about what I'm going to wear physically, what I'm going to put on my body, physical clothes. I'm also thinking about how I'm going to dress in terms of my character today. What clothing am I going to clothe myself with? Is it going to be God-like, Christ-like? And what will we look like when we dress as a real Christian should dress? Well, here it is in verse 12. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, just a couple of brief comments before we finish. First is the love talked about in verse 14. It's not a feeling, it's a choice. I choose to care and respect for and look after my fellow Christian, regardless of feelings. And the other thing is in verse 15, the peace of Christ, which should rule in our hearts, is not talking about a feeling of peace, which helps us make our decisions. You know how some Christians say, well, I, I, maybe you said this. Well, I had peace about it. Well, maybe you did, but maybe that's because you had a good night's sleep or you, you're on medication. No, it's not how you make your choices. Incidentally, if you're going to make good choices, don't go for that, I have peace about it. Take advice, search the scriptures, pray for God to overrule your circumstances. That's a much better guide than whether you've subjectively got a feeling of peace in your heart and mind. Look at the context here in verse, verse 15. Verse 14 says, love binds everything together in perfect harmony. So we've got this idea of harmony immediately before Paul talks about peace ruling in our hearts. And then immediately after, if you complete the sentence, Paul says that the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body. He's talking about the unity of the body here. So the context is the life of the local church. So what it's saying is you make your decisions in your church life and in your personal life, not based on a subjective feeling of peace, but an objective assessment of the impact of your decision on the harmony and unity of the local church. Does it help show love 
Is it in line with perfect harmony? Does it show that you know you were called in one body to function? And unity of the body is critical. Sure, there may be times when we need to contend for the truth, but often there will be times when we'll decide to do or say something or not to do or say it on the basis of what will lead to harmony and avoid division. That's what it means to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts as we think about those decisions. And the local church, a community like this, is to be marked by compassionate hearts. Verse 12, think of those beautiful qualities, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And it all begins with the astonishing power of Christ who made us alive when we were dead in our sins, which leads not to hypocrisy, but to the real Christian life. And for this, verse 15, be thankful. Let's pray.